will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will, lie, will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. We have now come to the end of a series that has lasted a full year. Last sermon in the series. Does anybody remember what the title of the series is? I didn't think so. I have to remind myself too. But it's been a great series, cool title, even if I do say so myself. And the title, the title of the series has been Ancient Stories, Contemporary Truth. And you know, yeah, Don, oh, I, I remember it now. Of course, you know what we've been doing is looking at stories in the Old Testament and seeing the wisdom in those stories for today. And we've seen so much. We've just galloped through the Old Testament, overlooking many important stories, but you can't get them all. Now, today there's another ending and a new beginning. The second ending is that we're at the end of a three-part series entitled Three Words from the Prophets. To wrap up this whole Old Testament sequence, we wanted to focus on three words, well, more than three words, but three sayings from the prophets. The first saying we focused on in the first week, it was, you were loved. The prophet speaking the words of God to the people who were in exile, you're loved. The second word from the prophets, again, spoken by God through the prophet to the people in exile, I will redeem I'm going to bring you back. The third word from the prophets that came from God today to the people and vicariously to you, there is hope. There's hope. I want you to imagine for a moment a land that had a serious problem, a scarcity, really, of clean water. The water was so polluted the streams and every source of water, that it was creating massive destruction in the land. People were sick. People were dying in large numbers. And a group of people 
with very good will and the resources to do something about it, said, we can solve this problem. We're going to send to you boatloads of money and equipment to drill wells in your land so you can get clean, pure water for all your people. No expense spared. We can do this. And the day came when the equipment arrived and the money arrived. And the dictator of this land set up a press conference, talked about all the wells that were going to be drilled, talked about all the money they had to do it, and then, just like a vapor, it was gone. A few wells, a few places, all for TV, and before you know it, all the money was sucked dry by a greedy dictator. Or another imaginary thing that could happen, a nation absolutely in the midst of a horrific famine. No food to spare. People and animals alike starving. And again, a people of much goodwill and considerable wealth said we can fix this problem. We'll send to your shores by plane, by ships, grain, all kinds of food. Distribute it well. We'll even teach you how to plant the crops and everything will be well and same thing happened. Except this time, the people looked up on the horizon and they saw a massive mansion being constructed by a dictator who siphoned the money away for himself and built up a large military to suppress others. Oh, you don't have to imagine that, right? You've seen it happen. It's called the history of the world. Where people of goodwill see an issue, a problem, they say it's fixable. If you'll just do this, we'll give it to you. And someone with evil intent and selfish motivation grabs the resource and it's gone. It's called hideous injustice. And it's the kind of thing that the prophets cried against over and over and over again. And it's the word that the prophets spoke into this disenfranchised minority of people called God's people in that Assyrian, Babylon, Persian nation. The prophet says, I know you've been oppressed. I know it's been a hard time. And as a matter of fact, part of this judgment is the judgment of God. But there's hope. You're going to be restored because I love you. And here's the hope. How's it going to happen? It's going to come in the person of a Savior, so to speak. It's going to be a servant of the Lord, says Isaiah. What's this servant of the Lord going to be like, the people might have asked. What are the characteristics of this servant of the Lord? And Isaiah says very explicitly in just these 10 verses what it's going to look like. Here's the first thing. The characteristic of this servant of the Lord is going to be absolute divine wisdom. W will you hear the verses again, one through three? This servant of the Lord... He's going to come up from a shoot, a stump, from Jesse's lineage. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, 
the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The way this hope is going to spring eternal for you is this servant of the Lord is going to bring that kind of wisdom. You know what's behind that statement, that promise, that hope? There's an implication. You haven't seen it yet. You've had leaders in the past, and they've never been quite like this. They've never completely measured up to the standard of wisdom of God himself. This leader, this servant, is going to be the embodiment of the wisdom of God. I've heard a lot of definitions of wisdom, but the one I love the most comes from Cornelius Plantiga, and I've quoted him before. He says, wisdom is broadly speaking the knowledge of God's world and the knack of of fitting oneself into it. This man, this servant of the Lord, has the complete knowledge of God's will and the complete knack not only of fitting himself into it, but fitting all people into it. You know, we live in a town that loves education, and I love this town. I have since the day I've arrived. I happen to be a person who loves education. My wife's an educator, and I love it. I love the life of the mind. I can't stand to be simplistic, and it's part of my problem. Sometimes I'm too complicated, and I overthink it, but I love it. But in the middle of this particular place, our living situation, we can forget something. And here's what we can forget. Good education and a high level of intelligence is only, only the raw material for good judgment. It doesn't ensure good judgment. As a matter of fact, a great education and all kinds of knowledge in some people ensures catastrophe. That's what the prophet is saying right here. He's saying this person is full of knowledge, but more than that, full of the wisdom of God. He knows how to apply the wisdom of God to life. In the first years that I was a pastor, I pastored in a church called First Baptist New Haven. For those of you who might not know where New Haven is, it's in the town that is Yale University. And I had gone to school there and completed my degree and took this church. So in the shadow of Yale University, this church appreciated knowledge. They loved good education, and so did I. But I can't tell you how many times over the course of four years in that place, I would hear words that went something like this from a parishioner, usually speaking of a family member, especially a child, and they would say, you know, Pastor, they have just made a royal mess of their lives. And then they would describe the details. And then almost always a tagline that went something like this, and these are educated people. I was a little more timid back then, which probably made me a better pastor because now I just say things. <laughs> but had I not been timid, I probably would have said, really? 
And you're surprised by that? Knowledge does not apply to wisdom. Wisdom takes knowledge and applies it appropriately. You know what I should have said on that occasion? Oh, hindsight's 2020, isn't it? I should have said, you know what you're looking at? You're looking at a picture of the fall. Oh my goodness, not only did Adam and Eve have all knowledge, they had everything, and they had a perfect world, a garden unspoiled, relationships that were perfect, and they spoiled all of it. They didn't possess deep within their souls or deeply enough the very wisdom of God not to be foolish to pick something that God had said is not for you. All the knowledge, all the perfection, and still they fouled it up. This person, says Isaiah, will not be that Adam. Or to put it in the words of Paul, he's going to be the second Adam. He's going to get it right. Because he's going to be filled with not only the knowledge, but the wisdom of the Lord. So the first characteristic of this servant is divine wisdom. The second characteristic of this servant is infallible justice. Again, verse 3, the last part of verse 3. This person, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike down the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness, the sash around his waist. This person is the embodiment of perfect justice and the one who can perfectly implement it. Why? Remember what we just said? Because he's the embodiment of divine wisdom. Why is he going to rule justly? Because he is the wisdom of God. He embodies it perfectly. You know this phrase, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. You may look at that and say, how else would you decide? you got eyes and ears and they're there for a reason, correct? Yes, for sure. The prophet is not saying that our five senses are absolutely unreliable. He's not suggesting that you can't be discerning with your eyes and with your ears. He's suggesting that to be truly discerning, to really have the deep wisdom of God, and to apply justice impeccably, infallibly, you've got to go above, beyond, around the five senses. You've got to go deeper. And this person has got more than the five senses. He's got the very wisdom of God. We live in a world where justice is incomplete, don't we? And where knowledge is incomplete. For true justice to be implemented, we would need infallible knowledge of all the facts and perfect wisdom in the application of justice. Folks, we don't have it. And we never will. The best judges do their best to hand down sentences for a punishment that's appropriate, for reparations for the harm, 
and for even restoration of the one who caused the harm. But judges are fallible, and this one's not. We hear stories every day of people who have been falsely accused and charged falsely, sometimes put on death row and gone. Never again. Never again. Perfect justice. Oh, by the way, perfect justice is not the same thing as the perfect application of the law. Correct? How many times have you seen the perfect application of the law and thought to yourself, but justice, where's that? That's the hope we have, says Isaiah. It will be absolute, complete, infallible justice. The third characteristic of the servant of the Lord, not only is he one who has divine wisdom and will implement infallible justice, he's the one who's going to bring perfect peace, absolute perfect peace. In the image Isaiah paints, you've heard it, but let me read it again. The wolf will live with the lamb. Not happening. That image just just defies logic, doesn't it? The leper will lie down by the goat instead of eating it. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them, just like he leads a puppy dog. The cow will feed with the bear and the young will lie down together. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the infant. This one's amazing. We'll play near the hole of the cobra and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. Can you think as a parent of anything more terrifying than watching your baby slip his hand into a viper's nest? Isaiah says, don't worry, parents. The viper can't harm. The viper doesn't even want to harm. Can I elaborate? (laughs) And paint the picture with broader brush strokes. Isaiah's saying there's a day coming, my friends, when the child will reach his hand into the viper's nest and the snake will innocently and beautifully coil round his or her arm and the child will look at it with pure delight. That's the day coming. Perfect peace. I promise you, says Isaiah, it's coming. Now, let's state the obvious, uh, or maybe not the obvious for everyone. He's not talking about just cessation of hostilities, right? He's not talking about a peace treaty. He's talking about peace in the richest sense of the term. Actually, a word in Hebrew called shalom, where there's absolute flourishing of all things in a perfectly well-ordered world, where every natural desire is satisfied and every natural gift is used to its ultimate potential, where everything is perfectly ordered and there is nothing but pure delight. That's what the prophet promises from God. I um, probably will overdo this, but I'm going to do it anyway. On a few analogies of shalom. Oh, they're small, insignificant, but there's something about them that's perfect. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a lot of things. Um, 
for a stranger, NBA point guard, not happening. I, at one point, I wanted to open up my own bicycle shop because I love my bicycles. And I had a buddy um, who was going to help me open up this shop, and we were going to run everybody else out of business because we were so good. And we were all of 12 or 13, so <laughs> we knew how to do it. But I love to fix my bike and make it hum perfectly. I mean, those of you who were into bikes when you were kids, you know what I mean. You flip it upside down, seat down, handlebars down. And you take your hand and you place it on the pedal and you make that sprocket go around. And you test the chain and you adjust it until it's just the right tightness, not too much, not too loose. And then you lubricate the chain. This was the 70s. 10-speed bikes were new and cool. And as you turn the sprocket, you shift the gears. And it clicks just seamlessly from first to second to third. It was like music to my ears. It was perfect shalom. I mean, honestly, in those moments, it's, it's odd to say, but I know you know it when you're 12. Everything was right in the world. And the other thing, you know how you test a front wheel to see if it's perfectly balanced on a bicycle? You just put your finger in the spokes and you spin it. And you look to see if it wiggles, but that's not the true test. You wait till it comes to a complete stop, but it doesn't just stop. It goes like this and almost magically it hits a point and it oscillates back. And for a second, it just does this until it comes to perfect rest. Shalom. So many other illustrations of it that you, you could see. Great athletes, I love to watch them. Not one myself, but I love to watch them. Um, I remember watching Walter Payton play football. Um, one of the most amazing running backs in the history of the NFL for the Chicago Bears. You know what his nickname was? Somebody know? Sweetness. Are you kidding me? Walter Payton Sweetness? Why? Because he was like a ballet star on the football field. He could move in ways nobody else could. He could skirt the traffic. He could cut through. It was a thing of pure beauty. Or a golf swing. I mean, my golf swing, it looks like I'm trying to kill a rattlesnake, you know. But a real gully good golf swing, or digging up a mole, <laughs> a really good golf swing. It's just perfect. The pendulum is just delightful, and the ball soars to the exact spot that you focus your eye. Played golf yesterday, and that didn't happen. Not even once. But... That's shalom. Or maybe it's for you, you're a writer. When you get in that zone, the words come so fast you can hardly type them out. Perfect shalom. Or a musician who becomes so one with his instrument that he's one with the note and the music just soars through them and the crowd erupts into applause. Perfect shalom.
Now multiply that times a million. In every part of all human life, in every activity, in every human spirit, in every emotion, that's what God promises to his people. Hang on to that hope, he says. It is coming. I promise you it's coming. One of the most uh, delightful periods of your life is when you're about ready to be married. It's one of the reasons I love to do weddings. I, I did one on Saturday. And uh, my son and his fiance, who are about to get married in October, are here this morning with us and been this weekend, and her parents as well. I, yeah, I think I can say this without choking up. It's been a shalom weekend. It has been. Two people coming together in perfect harmony under the grace of Jesus Christ. Watching that delight. Shalom. God says it's coming. But you know what? It came in three stages. First it came for those people who heard it first and the temple was restored. But it didn't last. I mean, first you had Persia, that mighty empire who actually commissioned them to be, build the walls and the temple again. And then right behind that you had Greece that was the gigantic power in the world. And then Rome when Jesus came in and they were a tiny little speck of humanity, those people of God. But God says, I promise you, you can have hope because someday the Messiah is coming and he came. And in the person of Jesus Christ, for the first time, he opens up a vision of what the world could be. He invites people to come into the kingdom of God right here and right now and to experience a peace and a joy that is beyond human comprehension, but it's not complete, is it? Not at all. We live in what theologians call, I love the phrase, the already not yet. You already in the presence of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit can experience a perfect peace and shalom, but not yet because it's not over. The final chapter is yet to be written. And when the final chapter is written, it'll look like verses 6 through 10. The wolf's going to lay down by the lamb. And that precious little baby is going to play with a cobra. And everything will be just fine. I think about where people are when I think about this hope. And I wonder, are you at a place where some parents are? The doctor has given you the news that your child has an incurable disease that in one way or another will hamper a full life. There's a day coming. Whatever the issue, that child is going to dance free like the lame man who has legs. Perfect. Shalom. That's our hope. Or maybe that's not your particular condition. You feel absolutely abandoned. Completely betrayed by family or friends or spouse. And you feel like your heart will break. 
There's coming a day, says God, through the prophet Isaiah and through the promise of Jesus, that your heart, it's hard to believe, but your heart will be absolutely healed. There's coming a day, says the prophet, through Isaiah and through Jesus, that that loved one you've lost, that leaves such a gaping hole in your life that you feel like you can't breathe, you and that loved one will experience the beauty of the eternal nature of a resurrection. That day's coming. Hang on to the hope. Remember that day when the disciples were with Jesus and there were ups and downs in ministry. And on one day, Jesus was teaching and people just started leaving in mass, just walking out on him. And he looked at the vast crowds disappearing. And he turned to his disciples and he said, are you going to desert me too? And Peter, who always had the right word and always the wrong word, seemingly at the same time, looked at Jesus and he said, Lord, are you kidding me? Where are we going to go? You've got the words of hope. Or to put it in other words that Jesus said, you're the way, you're the truth, and you're the life. We don't have anything else, God. We're clinging to you. No matter where you are, if it's dark, if it's not dark, if you're experiencing the hope, no matter where you are, cling to the hope patiently. That's why the early Christians could walk through all kinds of chaos and suffering and martyrdom. First Peter's a wonderful book that way. It says, be patient, endure during tribulation, and have hope, hope in the glory of God, because the day is coming when everything is going to be made new. Sometimes on some days, I look for the hope. And it's like I'm looking through binoculars that aren't quite focused. I can see the image. I know it's out there. But on occasion, God gives me the grace to focus the binoculars and see the full color. And it renews my hope. Oh, by the way, you know that's what the miracles of Jesus were all about? When he healed the blind and the lame and calmed the storm and even raised the dead, he was pulling back the curtain to restore the hope. He was saying, someday this will be normal. That's your hope. I end with a memory of being a child. I can remember uh, delighting and a trip that was planned most of the time to Louisville, Kentucky. I know most people don't delight in thinking about going to Louisville, Kentucky, but for me, I did. My grandparents were there, and it was beautiful. And I anticipated every day, whether it was summer or winter, when we went. And when we would go, I would love it. And then it was over. All the delight was a memory. It was gone. Here's the promise. As you look forward to it, the day will come and it will 
never be over. Cling to that as your hope. It's true. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. Your message through the prophets, the embodiment of that truth in Jesus Christ. Sometimes our faith, well, it weakens in the test of life. When we have that person that we loved and counted on who just walks out of our life and says, in effect, I don't love you anymore. I don't need you. I never did. Our hearts are broken. When that one we love just as if disappears into thin air and, and they're gone because of death, or when heartbreak is more than we can, we can bear. Give us the reminder, Lord, that is deeply embedded in the truth of your word, that there's hope in Jesus Christ, that you're going to restore everything. That as Paul says, even creation has been groaning right up until the present day, awaiting its redemption. And like it, we, those who have the first fruits through the Spirit, groan inwardly, awaiting the day when we'll be completely restored. We thank you for that hope, but we thank, it's, thank you it's not a wish fulfillment, it's true. And now, Lord, on occasions this week, we pray. Please, dear Jesus. We pray that you'll pull back the curtain. That you'll give us a glimpse of eternity. That you will stir the hope in our hearts. And that the hope will be so real and so live that at least for a time there will be perfect delight and not even a room for doubt. Lord, we've experienced it and we long for that experience to be reality. But until that day, give us patience. Help us wait joyfully and to wait in hope. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.